Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Today, I want to talk about the problem of attempting to bring train skills in our dogs into problematic contexts for them. So prime example would be trying to bring the skill of attention, loose leash walking, downstays into the context of something highly triggering, like perhaps other dogs, an agility trial, something that produces a bigger kind of response or reaction from our dogs. And I do think that we try to train this way. We try to seek out our triggers and then train within the context of the triggers. And while that's an important part of training, I want to offer kind of a different perspective that I think might be helpful for some of you who might be struggling with these specific uh, challenges. So when we bring our skills that are often weak, and that's kind of a core problem here, into context, we might fail to recognize the context as a test of the skills. So I want you to think of the context, the hard thing, as a test always. And then think of training out of context as the teaching slash learning that needs to happen in order for the test to be attempted. So you are teaching if you're out of context, but you are testing if you are in context. And that's always true. You're always testing if you're in context. And that means that you are limited to the confines of the fluency that you have trained. So you're limited to how well you have trained those skills. You're limited to whether or not the fluency can hold up to the context. And of course, I'm going to get into some examples here because I know that I'm kind of talking very conceptually, but I think it's important for us to understand that there's training slash teaching, there's management, and then there's testing, testing the teaching that you've, that you've undergone rather. And Management is what's going to happen if the skills can't yet hold up to the context. And if you don't know whether the skills have held up, will hold up to the context, you're going to ask, and that's going to be your test. And if the dog fails the test, that tells you to go back to the teaching. And it tells you next time, just manage. Don't ask that question. So let's get into some examples. One is a a recent one in my life that I may have talked about elsewhere, but uh, Rhea is my 19-month-old Icelandic sheepdog, and she is pretty disturbed by horses, particularly people on the backs of horses, particularly if they surprise us on a trail. And when she's disturbed, what I mean by that is that she wants to bark maniacally in such a way that is kind of well over threshold. She barks at everything because she's an Icelandic, but she doesn't bark in such a way that she can't respond to cues and can't eat food, except for this one really specific thing that she becomes kind of unhinged about. 
if she's free to do so, she'd also like to charge at the horses. So this is really dangerous, right? And last spring and summer, I managed, I had to manage through this. There was no learning to be had if we randomly ran into a horse and rider team on the trail because that's the context and her skills could not yet hold up to that context. And so every time it happened, I went into full-blown management mode as best as I could and just managed her through the situation. How did I manage her? I tried to get distance if I could. Um, I tried to block vision if I could. Uh, Mostly distance would be best. And then honestly, if I couldn't get distance, I just tucked her under my arm because she's little and let the whole thing happen. And the horses, well, they always leave, right? They don't want to stand there and stare at you while your dog barks. And then I did provide her therapeutic exposures, but that was really, really little of, of what we did in the nine month, in the last kind of nine months. So in the last nine months, she hasn't experienced a horse and rider team, except for some very out of context scenarios in which I was able to train like uh, some rangers, some uh, mounted rangers who were patrolling a parking lot at a dog show we were at that was out of context enough that she was able to show me that her skills were holding up. And that was fantastic. And then we had some really, really good distance from some horse and riders when we went to Sinosport in Tennessee, and that was in the fall. So that's literally two times that she was exposed. And the rest of the time I was training her skills. I was working on her skills of recall, and downstay primarily. Uh, I'm sorry, and one more skill. So recall, downstay, and also eating a scatter no matter what's going on. Eating a scatter no matter what's going on is a skill. I consider that a skill. You could use it as management if you can get enough distance that it's not a skill. Does that kind of make sense? So one of my management techniques for horses passing might've been pull far enough off the trail that she can eat the scatter and then produce the scatter. Whereas today I can scatter food kind of no matter what else is going on and expect her to eat it just like I might expect her to hold a downstay. And I actually reinforce the scatter by dropping better food into the scatter. So she might be eating a scatter of kibble and I'm dropping bits of cheese or chicken into the scatter periodically to reinforce it. So those are the skills that we worked really, really hard on for nine months when we were not exposed to horses. And we ran into a test really recently. So it was unplanned. And that's why it's a test and not a training situation. It was unplanned. Some uh, two women on horseback appeared on the trail. Rhea, her instant response was, I'm going to charge and bark. But she recalled immediately and she ate a scatter as they passed. Brilliant. I was really, really happy she passed the test. Now passing was a passing grade, but I'd still give it like a B minus because she still barked and charged, but it was a passing grade because she recalled, nobody died, nobody got hurt. And Uh, She ate the scatter after she recalled and didn't try to chase them again. Now, not long after that, we had to pass them again because they were lost and they had to turn around. And at that point, we didn't have much space at all to get off the trail. And I asked her to scatter as they passed. And then I asked her to downstay when I thought she could, like when the distance was big enough, because the scatter is easier to do than the downstay. And it's important to kind of know your hierarchy of your skills there. And then I asked her for downstay as they left and she did it. And there was still quite a bit of barking. I don't care if she's barking and then eating and barking and eating or barking from her downstay, as long as she's not charging and she's doing what I ask and she's still eating food. So I would give it, uh, I would give that scenario a B plus, maybe a minus was pretty good. Still passing, pass the test. 
gave me a lot of information. The fact that she's still barking, the fact that she's still having this big response to the horses is a data point for me to take to my teaching, take to my training. But the fact that she was able to engage the skills that I've worked on for the last nine months tells me, man, we're really on the right track, right? She passed the test. A sport example might be that I'm currently working on retraining Felix's a for running A-frame contact because my data, my observations of the test, which is the trial, were that he was doing a one hit, usually high in the yellow, but sometimes missing and therefore not getting a qualifying score on the run. And when you're doing any kind of sports, you need to look at the, t- the trial as a test. And we now have some options like fix and go or running for exhibition only where we think we can be training. I would still encourage you to treat all trials like tests, even if you're, even if you're engaging some of those options and maybe a later podcast, maybe with Megan Foster, where we talk about fix and go might be in order, but in general, I want you to look at any trial as a test because you can't train because you can't access your reinforcers and set up clean loops and do all the things you need to do to produce a nice clean training session. So it's always a test. So I don't do anything about it. If he misses his contact in a trial, it's a data point. And I go back to the drawing board. Here's what's really important is that he needs to be doing more A-frames in training than he is in trialing to make this work, right? So the training needs to be happening more often then the trial happens and I don't trial that much. So this isn't that hard for me to do. But if I were trialing every single weekend, I'd now be looking at way overtraining my dog and wearing his body down. So what does this mean? It means you need to take a break from trials to go back to your teaching phase because the dog has failed the test. So the context is outweighing the fluency of the skill that you ha- you believe you have taught. So you need to go back, work on the fluency of that skill, and then you can pull it back out and test it. I've got a test planned for him coming up in about another month. So that'll be about two months off of trialing to work on this. I'm going to test once. Not and I'm not like, okay, two months is over. I'm entering all the trials. I've got one trial entered and I'm only entering one standard run a day rather than the two that I can enter. And so that's one A-frame a day, not two. And I'm going to ask him the question and it's going to be data. And then if we're maybe talking about some pet dog behavior, one of my favorite ways to look at this would be loose leash walking. So I love training my dogs not to pull on leash. I like to train them to keep that leash slack and that if they feel pressure on that leash, that it's their responsibility to release that pressure. I teach that deliberately. I teach it out of context. I don't teach it when I want to go on a walk. If I want to go on a nice long walk and this dog is not trained yet to do that, they're going to wear a no pull device. I'm going to manage. I And I'm not going to kid myself that that management is training. It isn't. It's good. It's helpful. It helps your skills. It helps you pass the test later because you're not practicing the bad thing. And that's true of any management. It's good. It's helpful. It's not training. The training I'm going to do is going to be really deliberate out of context or in a context I think the dog can do. So like my move might be to walk the dog for two miles on their no pull device. And then when we turn around, switch them to whatever I want them to walk on normally and ask them to loose leash walk and test them then because they've got two miles under their belt. And so the antecedents are probably set up in my favor now. So leash walking is a really good one. If you clip the leash to the collar or the back of the harness or whatever it is, you don't want the dog to pull on and you go on a walk, you are testing, not training. 
And I would encourage you not to train on the walk. So that's in context, if that's going to be too hard, right? So work on those skills, other places, other times, like in the second half of the walk, or really one of my favorite things to do is to let the dog run off leash for three miles and then walk them on leash one mile back to the car. And that usually works really slick because the dog's needs have been met. They've been exercised and now they're interested in walking with you for a food reinforcer on the way back to the car. So setting yourself up there to not be training in context, again, really sets you up to have nice loose leash walking that is robust and that can hold up to a lot of different contexts. And now, you know, once the dog really understands those skills, I can hold, I can test them in tougher and tougher environments. I might ask them to walk on a loose leash through an airport or through a hotel lobby. If they fail the test, then I know my skills didn't hold up to that environment. So I'm going to go back to the drawing board in my training phase and see how I can layer in some difficulty there to teach the dog better to be prepared for those tough tests at a later date. So I hope that this brought some clarity rather than more confusion. And of course, let me know over on uh, Facebook and Patreon if it created confusion. Okay, and I've got three Patreon questions for you. First one comes from Sage who writes, I have a question about Jed, my now seven month old working line border collie puppy. He's been having some GI upset and I really trust the medical team we're working with to figure out what's going on. Unfortunately, this GI upset seems to have poisoned eating in so many contexts and I'm trying to figure out his relationship with food. Right now, our biggest priorities are getting calories in him to help maintain his health and only providing food in context where we're pretty sure he wants it and it won't cause discomfort of any sort. He was losing weight with defined mealtimes, and we think he can only eat small volumes at a time without feeling nauseous. We've basically stopped using food in any training setting, but I think I'm seeing some fallout from this since he has good toy skills, but big feelings about toys, and those big feelings are being transferred into any setting where training might happen. Also, he's seven months old and big feelings are just a thing. We want to know how to help him maintain and eventually improve his relationship with food, and we love help on One, what to do now when we're not sure if he's well and still dealing with the health issues. And two, how to fix the stuff that's been poisoned and build back up our food drive in a healthy way. Wow, Sage, I'm so sorry that this is happening with your puppy. And I'm really, really happy that you've got a good medical team and you guys are going to figure this out. And I really trust that you're going to figure it out. And that means that while you're figuring it out, I don't want you to worry about your second question here, which is how to fix the stuff that's been poisoned. I don't want you to concern yourselves with it. I want to leave it alone. Any situation where he might not want to eat in, don't try. Don't try to feed him stuff that he has an aversion to. Leave it be. Work on his health. When he has a normal appetite again, you can come back and you can use all the principles I laid out in the food episode. When he has a normal appetite, you can't do that until he is better. Here's the other thing. This health problem is only contributing to the normal seven-month-old big feelings that are happening. When the dog's body is dysregulated and kind of out of whack, they're going to have bigger responses to everything. So you're right that you want to be really mindful of building a ton of unhelpful feelings into your training. I would shelf a lot of your training right now. I would do a whole lot of out walking in the world, being a dog. He doesn't need food to do that. 
In fact, a lot of times we mask their real responses to the environment with foods. Just make sure it has plenty of space from everything so that you don't really feel like you need food. You can always bring food. And if he chooses to eat, great. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. And you can tell him he's a good boy anyway and move on with your life. I don't know the specifics of the big feelings other than what you told me, which is concerning the training stuff. So with the training stuff, you might switch up the way that you're working with toys. So that's kind of number one, I might switch up the type of toy to be less exciting, less arousing. So if you can lower that, do. If throwing the toy is really exciting, stop throwing it. If tugging the toy is really exciting, make sure that you let go of it a lot and you really keep it light and happy. And also make sure that there's always at least two toys available so that he can switch off and go grab another toy. So we're just lessening any feelings of possession he might have. And don't do any standard toy stuff that agility people do, like pushing on him or pulling it out of his mouth and expecting him to control himself and stuff like that. Let him possess it most of the time. You might even ask him to do behaviors while he's possessing one toy and then reward him by asking him to switch to another toy. Those are kind of my feelings on it right now from the tiny bit of information that I have. So give that stuff a try. Keep digging in on the health stuff. Do not stop digging. Get there and you're going to get through it. Just don't worry too much about all your training. You can teach him later anything that you think you need to teach him now. What he's learning now that is not helpful to you is that big feeling stuff. So if he's if you can't avoid him having huge feelings about whatever the training is, then train less, right? Do some scent work, do some tracking, and he can track for a toy rather than doing you know, a lot of performance reps or anything else like that. Best of luck, Sage. I'm, I'm again, I'm sorry. It's such a nightmare situation. Next one comes from Lisa who writes that she would love a concise explanation to give clients of working breeds why fetch can cause OCD and she means obsessive compulsive disorder behaviors. People are resistant to this idea. And if there are alternative ways to play fetch, I can recommend instead to still serve the human's needs. So the human's needs are met by decompression walks, nice long walks for their dog, for their young dog, and training that really helps to decompress the dog as well, like tracking and nose work. If the human literally has a need to throw the toy, you might be a little bit SOL. Like that may not be up to you to be able to change. Here's the thing. We don't know if it causes obsessive compulsive disorder. That's not, that's not something we're aware of. What I observe is that they almost appear to have an addiction response. So they just want more and more and more, and it's not actually settling. And all of their other behaviors are kind of not looking great. If all of their behaviors are looking fine and they're playing fetch every day in the park, I'm not worried about it. It's if their behaviors are over the top, seems like this dog needs more exercise, seems like this dog can't get enough activity. That's when I'm going to stop playing repetitive stuff like that. And I'm going to get them some real exercise, like some decompression walks. You might also rewind all the way back several years to the Jade case studies, because I do talk about that quite a bit. All right. Next one comes from Marissa. I have a four-year-old rescue who has intense anxiety. He's extremely reactive to dogs and sometimes to people, but only under specific circumstances. My question is related to how he handles things, which he finds arousing. My dog will speed up and really intensely want to go sniff whatever the trigger is, no matter what. We have a protocol where I get him to sniff the person and then he comes back to me before he sniffs the person again and gets a treat. The issue is that whenever we see a person and they engage with his speed with us, he speeds up and really wants to go sniff them. If I stop him from sniffing the person via management, 
It only works for about two minutes before he decides to need to sniff the person. Again, most of the time it is fine, but when people don't follow the treat protocol, he can be unpredictable and may bark in their face. After he has sniffed the person and got a treat from them, he's normal as long as the person doesn't pet him. I know that speeding up is something that a lot of dogs struggle with in reactivity, and I know that part of the answer is that you need to get the dog under threshold, but do you have any advice on how to support dogs who have conflicted feelings about triggers? Like he really wants to check it out, but he's also very afraid. So Marissa, I wouldn't be having this dog greet people at all. And this episode that you just listened to should really help you here as far as get him out of this context to train the skills, get him away from his trigger to train the skills. There's no reason that he needs to approach people if he has conflicted feelings about it. What he needs is skills around people. He doesn't need the skill of saying hi. He obviously doesn't want them to touch him. So I wouldn't be letting anybody touch him and I wouldn't be asking him to approach either. I'd be working really hard on a downstay and nice loose leash walking and attention to you. And then I would bring it slowly into the context of other people who are under the instruction that they are not to greet him at all. Best of luck, Marissa. And that's it for this week. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.